Hi, Joe. Hello, Hamish. Good to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Um, I thought a good way to kind of talk about some of your techniques and get into some other topics would be to talk about how they've changed over time. So maybe kind of compared to when you first started in the late 70s and 80s compared to now, maybe if, if we start with the drums, what was your kind of taste and go-to mic techniques and favourite mics back then, how they changed over time uh, going up to now? Well, I mean, I think techniques and taste um, do change over time. Uh, you know, I think the the real key to the question is that, you know, my, my approach is different for every project that I do. Um, I might not use the same mics or same amount of mics or in the same position, uh, giving, you know, given the project. Um, for instance, we were just talking about the Morrissey album, which is, you know, a, a bigger rock sort of act. I probably use a lot of different microphones and then, um, you know, I'm doing something that's a bit more folky and I probably use uh, a lot less microphones and a mono overhead and less room mics and, you know, much tighter sound. So I don't know, you know, the maybe in some ways um, the overall aesthetic has changed over time. If you think about... You know, now we're in a culture that is used to pop, big pop records, dance records. We've been sort of behind hip hop for the last 30 years. So the bottom end and the, the sort of danceability of the, the grooves is really important. So I think we make records now at this moment with a, with a bigger sense of low end, more impact, more groove, a tighter groove. Um, and if you look back in the, the 90s, um, things were a bit more aggressive and in your face and more uh, mid-rangey perhaps in terms of the drums. And um, so, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, you, you change more so with the project, with the music. But I also think that, you know, you're influenced by the times that you create the music in. Yeah, sure. Uh, maybe you could talk us through... For example, the Morrissey project you've just been doing, kind of some of the mics and techniques you've been using for that for that bigger rock sound. Um, this particular Morrissey record is a, is indeed uh, a, 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 it's different for him. Definitely uh, more sense of groove, more going on the bottom end. Uh, I don't want to say it's a dance record; it's not by any means. But there's definitely uh, a lot more awareness of building something up from the bottom that moves and uh, it's got a life on the bottom and uh, there's probably um, more focus on keyboards uh, less of a sort of big uh, chugging 70s rock record if you would want to put it that way um it's much more straight ahead uh you know sort of four on the floor on the bottom on a lot of tunes and just more, much more sense of groove uh to this uh record um you know certainly there's there's um ballads and simple tunes that that don't have that same approach but um definitely i would say overall it's a bit of a change up in sound and you know it's something he wanted he wanted the uh the covers album that i just mentioned to you earlier um to have a different sound than the last album I did with him. And, uh, this new one, uh, will yet again have a little bit different, uh, approach to the sound. And, um, this is, uh, 
tell you, wow, this is my fourth album I've done with them. So, um, yeah, it's always always a kind of a challenge to, uh, you know, treat them all a little differently and give them all uh, a bit of character. But usually the, the material is really what dictates that, you know, just... Um, um, you know, how energetic the songs are, how storytelling they are, how aggressive they are, that kind of thing. Yeah. Could you maybe talk us through, um, in kind of specifics, how you've been miking the drums for this, kind of your go-to techniques for it? Um, yeah, okay, well, uh, you know, I, I guess, I mean, my favorite all-time kick drum mic is a is a AKG D12. I mean, if I have the opportunity to use that, that's my always first choice. Um, from there, you know, I use Bayer 88s a lot, RE20s, um, whatever. Um, so I start there for the inside of the kick. On the outside of the kick, I'll usually have a, a larger diaphragm um, condenser. A 47 FET would be the first choice, but 87s and even 414s and a number of things work well. They used to get padded down, and that I'll put on the outside of the kick drum. Um, you know, if it's a mic, if it's a kick that has. Uh, um, no opening in the head. I might even go so far as to take the front head off and mount a microphone inside the drum, uh, or I'll mic the beater side as well as the uh, resonant side. Um, if I have a sub kick available, I like to uh, have that available. Uh, I tend to, on most sessions, sort of over mic the drums, um, meaning I put a lot of mic up in the room and even on the kit and then I kind of pick and choose depending on what the song um, asks for so you know sometimes I might use uh, just a mono 47 on the, 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 the kit and a little bit of a snare mic and um, hi-hat mic but perhaps no tom mics no room mics for a tighter sound um, you know, specifically on Morrissey record some tunes were mic'd in that way, that they were uh, basically tighter, dancier drum loop kind of things. So they might have um, had just a mono 47 overhead, a 57 on the snare, maybe something 441 on the bottom of the snare, um, maybe a hi-hat, maybe no hi-hat, probably no tom mics. Um, you know, there'd be a, a smaller, tighter sound. The rock stuff would have uh, tom mics 421s. Um, it would have probably three mics on the snare drum. Um, it would have a K84 or 451 or Gefell 300 on the hi-hat. Um, you know, um, I'll often put mics sort of lo-fi mics by the kit, um, something maybe down by the kick drum pedal, or perhaps something up by the uh, uh, beater side skin of the kick drum, um, and that stuff usually gets heavily processed, and, you know, they're, they're just uh, there for character, um, just something to kind of hit the compressors with, or the distortion devices with, um, <clears throat> 
And then I'll have, again, for a big rock thing, I might have a stereo ribbon mic right in the front of the kit. Um, I might have a couple of closer mics, uh, you know, three to five feet back. Then I might have something, again, another pair of large condensers, you know, 10, 15 feet back in the room. Um so it, it really does change up. Oftentimes I'll put one mono mic out in the middle of the room, and that's usually a sort of lower-fi, mid-rangey condenser, maybe a, um, an old EV mic or a Shure or a Western Electric or something that's primarily just mid-range. I just kind of want the crack and the honk from it, and I sort of, just depending on the tune, will blend some of that in or not. Can you think back to a session where you use the least amount of microphones on the drums that you ever have? Oh, sure. Um, oh, let's see. Uh, uh, a few years ago, I did it for um, a UK artist, Keaton Henson, and um, a lot of the drums were done in a small booth where there might have just been a, a D12 on the kick, 57 on the, the snare, and a 47 or 67 as a mono overhead. Um, I did another artist uh, by the name of Daniel Martin Moore, who's this beautiful voiced kind of folk singer. Um, and um, we, same thing, drums were done in a very small, tight booth. And, and I almost think that it might have just been, because a lot of it was brushes, it might have just been like a mono overhead of 451 on the snare drum and maybe like an RE20 inside the kick drum, depending on the song. But really, really simple, not a lot of processing. You know, the overhead probably got a fair amount of um, 1176 type compression, but um, um, maybe even LA2A sometimes works great. Um, but, you know, like, again, the, the music tends to dictate the, the, the sounds. Yeah, of course. What's your favorite Mike Morrissey's voice? Oh, um, you know. For the most part, for Morrissey, we use uh, this last album. We used a uh, old school um, Neumann U forty seven. I would say one from the fifties or early sixties. Um, sometimes we've used a new Telefunken USA forty seven on him. Um, We've uh, also used the blue bottle mic with the 47 type capsule. I had good luck with that mic on his voice uh, for many songs, uh, certainly the ones that wanted to be uh, brighter and more alive and more modern sounding, for lack of a better word. Um, the, you know, the interesting thing about him vocally is that he's got a very big voice and he tends to sing you know, sometimes two and three feet away from the microphone. It's not like your typical pop vocal. And when you get him close up on the mic, the extra low end, um, I don't know, it doesn't sound like Morrissey anymore. It just doesn't It doesn't work. So I, I tend to let him, you know, kind of choose the mic placement because he really has a good sense of that. And, um, you know, um, it will get treated very simply in the control room. It might be an LA-2A um, or a TubeTech um, CL-1B. Um, I've even used the... Um, 
Anthony Di Maria limiter on him. Uh, I've used a retro 176 on him, and it's usually just a knee 1073. Mike preamp usually uh, flat. Maybe I'll use some pull tech EQ on him, but it's mostly tone control. You know, just just kind of top and bottom thing. When working with an artist like that who's had a kind of a long history of recording, uh, when it's your first time recording them, do you kind of ask them if they have like a favorite mic or favorite techniques or do you kind of just... Yeah, pretty much any artist that I ever work with. I mean, you know, nowadays everybody is familiar with the process so much. Uh, they all have their own studios that uh, I always ask, any artist that I work with, you know, is there a particular mic that you love the way it sounds, or, you know, perhaps when you did your last album, did you like your vocal sound, and um, if so, what about it did you like, and, you know, can we try to get a similar mic and try that, um, you know, it's, it's about uh, the singer delivering a great performance, and often, you know, I've had it where a singer says, oh, I love singing on a whatever, and then I kind of sit there and go, God, this doesn't really sound that great on him. Um, it might be too bright or whatever. And uh, But uh, if they're performing well, it doesn't matter. Um, I, I had something recently where... Um, the the um the singer sounded just great on one of these new uh Chandler EMI microphones and I loved it I was actually quite surprised um it, it seemed to just deliver all the good parts of, uh, of his voice um but it, at one point he said you know my last album I, I used an M49 and um might be fun to just try that on a few songs so we got a M49 an old one and um tried it and I actually wasn't really crazy about it but he was having such a good time singing on it and I think the the sort of compression that the tube gave um, him and the sort of clarity that it didn't have versus the uh, newer, more modern microphone um, maybe was a little more forgiving and he felt a little bit more confidence in his performance. So uh, I was sort of like, yeah, if you're feeling good, just, just go and I'll make up the differences in here. So, you know, it took adding a ton of tip top and, um, maybe I, I couldn't, I couldn't compress it as much as, um, I could with other things because it, uh, um, I don't know, got, got, got soft and, and small in the track, but, um, he felt like he, he felt like he was performing better, so to me that was half the battle. And um, I'd much rather win in terms of the performance. And um, you know, like I say, you can always kind of improve the sound. Yeah. Was that the Chandler Red mic or the newer TG one? Ah, the Chandler Red one. It's a big gray thing yeah. with the preamp built into it. I'm not sure what it's called. Yeah, that's the red. Do you use that a lot in your studio? No, I actually don't have one. The artist had one. And um, uh, I, um, I've, I've tried it before. I've tried it on other people. Um, and I, I think it's a good-sounding microphone, very good-sounding microphone. I, I, actually, anything that, that uh, Wade Chandler um, makes, Wade at, at Chandler um, makes is... Um, 
really, really great. I, I, um, uh, I have a lot of uh, his stuff, the Curve Bender and the Zener and the uh, Germanium Compressors, and uh, I think he makes quality gear. And, um, you know, for me, it's about, I, I like gear that has uh, personality, that, that has a tone, that has a character, especially if you're doing, uh, you know, rock records, alternative records, jazz record, perhaps a different thing. But, you know, you want as much personality in the sound as you can get. To me, it's all about really, um, you know, having a character and, you know, sounding unique and sounding different than other people's records. So, uh, I, I tend to like gear that really, you know, imparts a certain sound or that you can kind of push it in a way that it, that it delivers a character. So it's, you know, it's nice having your sort of favorite limiter or favorite EQ, whatever. But it, to me, it's more about just being able to deliver a tone. And, and, you know, there's some new manufacturers that are just building great, gear you know the 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 overstayer stuff the chandler stuff the cush audio stuff you know these are pieces of gear that just don't sound like any other gear and um i think that's important i mean the great old uh you know 1176s and la2as and apis and neves i use them every day and 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 love them but sometimes i like to get a little different character in things especially you know as we were talking about earlier the, the the sort of times that you live in really dictate the sound of the records. I, I need to make records that are um, unique for the artist, but competitive and sound like they belong in the time that they were made. Or I should say, they, they sound timeless. They don't have a real time stamp on it. Um, I don't really... Uh, I think trying to make something that's deliberately retro, um, it limits yourself. So I like, you know, if somebody says I want to make something that's a little bit more retro in terms of the sound, that's great. But I always want to find a way to perhaps, you know, put in some elements that are a little bit more modern and some elements that are a little bit more retro. You know, again, I, I just think it's it's coming up with a character for every record that's different than the other. And I I, I hope that that all my albums don't don't sound the same. I think I'd be a failure um, as a record maker if every record I did sounded the same, even if it was great. Um, I, I think that would be a disservice to the artists that I work with. Kind of moving on from that blending kind of vintage inspired kind of lo-fi tones and hi-fi more modern hi-fi stuff i was going to ask about the white stripes record and uh -huh. if you had any techniques for kind of blending those two worlds well it was interesting in that when i did that record i had worked with jack on some of his solo stuff prior to that and i knew his aesthetic and um you know knew how he liked to record and um had a good sense of, of him uh, as, a, as an artist and as a producer. And, um, you know, when, I, uh, when he called me about doing the White Stripes, I was excited because I was a fan of the band and um, you know, thought it would be great to do this. And I thought about it a lot. And I thought, you know, this is really great. This, this 
two-piece. This will be my time to do something that is a bit more honest, a bit more retro, a bit more classic. It's only two instruments. You know, let me do something that's like Glenn John's sort of mic technique that's that's kind of 70s approach to recording guitars, meaning, you know, large diaphragm condenser a foot or two off the the mic off the cone um, and not tight mic everything and not process things and basically, you know, do something that's that that in my mind was a little bit more timeless and a little bit more honest because I felt like, wow, it's just only two instruments. I don't have to worry about things cutting through the speakers that I didn't want to shave space off of things to to make them fit in. So maybe I can do something that's a little bit more honest in the approach. And I started out that way, and it was clear to me that after an hour or two of trying to get sounds, that it was boring. It just didn't have any sense of bigness, any sense of life and power. And, you know, if if I thought about other records that were being made uh, at the time, um, be it Queens of Stone Age or whatever, um, I was like, this, this won't fit in. This will be boring sounding. And I instantly said to Jack, hey, I, I got to rethink my whole approach to recording this. Will you just give me like 20 minutes, half hour? I want to just try a different approach to miking the drums. So I almost went the, the opposite in that, you know, I went from three or four microphones to 14 microphones. And, you know, I went from two microphones on the guitar amps to six microphones. And I went from no compression to heavy compression. And, um, you know, I, I uh, brought out uh, things like the DBX uh, subharmonic synthesizer and printed, you know, um, uh, you know, bass-generated harmonics um, on the kick drum when we recorded and um, uh, printed it to tape because that was all done on 16-track analog tape. So. There were no no Pro Tools, no plugins, you know, everything, all the sounds had to be gotten right there on the tracking date, very much, you know, old school uh, analog recording style. And um, so, so I had to sort of um, really quickly take a whole look at what I was doing, reassess it and go someplace else. And, um, you know, I, I think that um, it in, ended up making for a much more interesting record. Um, I think it would have been fine the other way. You know, I think Jack had just come from doing um, Get, Behind, Get Behind Me, Satan, and then Elephant before that, that he did at Toe Rag in London. And, um, you know, those were a little bit more honest records. They were, you know, mic'd with a bunch of Coles ribbons and simple techniques. Um, but, um, I don't know. It just felt like, I don't know, been there, done that, if you will. Just, I've heard this before. It's just not unique sounding. So, uh, I really scrambled and, and, uh, sort of took a different approach. So moving on from that to other instruments, I guess, of course, it varies a lot with the band and the guitar sound, but do you have any kind of uh, go-to or starting um, electric guitar mics, techniques? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, 
Um, again, it depends on the sound that you're going for. Uh, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, just, just the, um, 87 or, or came 84, you know, uh, uh, six inches to a foot off the, 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 the cone is, is great for what's called for in the part. Um, but other times if it's a bigger rock thing with a four by 12 cabinet, you know, I'll, I'll use more microphones. Usually I, I always end up with a ribbon and a dynamic, some combination of those two. Then I'll have another mic out in the room, perhaps maybe, I don't know, three, five feet away. And then if I'm doing, you know, solos or ambient parts uh i might have something that's 10 12 feet away and high up um but the combination of the ribbon and the the dynamic is seems to be a kind of winner for me because one supplies what the other is missing you know if i, I think back in the 90s when things were more guitar oriented and you had to get the biggest guitar sound ever. A guitar had to take up, you know, 50% of the record, if not more. Um, it was about, you know, a 57, a 421, a uh, 414, and then an 87 back in the room. And, you know, you'd be blending together different amps and two or three amps and, you know, just, just different style. And again, it's it's kind of what the 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 world was asking for in terms of tones at the time it's almost like every artist was competing with the other artist in terms of like who could get the biggest most in your face guitar sound speaking of all that um i wanted to ask about some of the records you the frank zappa records that you worked on in the 80s obviously a lot of those records uh-huh. are very kind of guitar centric was there anything differently that was done in terms of recording and mixing for a kind of guitar-centric album rather than a vocal-centric album? Uh, well, you know, the the, uh, the Frank Zappa stuff is interesting in that um, Frank was pretty much a genius and pretty unique, and that's the thing with most guitar players and most musicians, period, is that the sound is in their hands. It's not in the microphones. And the the way to get Frank Zappa guitar sound, if you will, is to get Frank Zappa to play it. And the way to get something to sound like Jack White is for Jack to play it. And, um, you know, every guitar player has such a unique approach to the instrument. And, and, you know, it's just like a drum in that depending on how much you press down on the string and how quickly you release the note, it really, really uh, determines the sound and how hard of a concussive attack you have on the string or not. Um, all those things play into the tone. So so when you talk about great guitar sounds, I mean, you know, it's really, truly in the player. Um, you know, specifically with Frank, um, the setup was pretty complicated because he was a great experimenter, loved to try new sounds, just constantly, constantly searching for different sounds. Um, 
his main setup would have actually been pretty involved because he actually had racks of gear. He had even-tied harmonizers and Marshall time modulators and ADA flangers and, you know, gain brains and custom-built preamps. And um, he, he had quite... Uh, a complicated uh, <clears throat> setup of of, uh, of of gear, something very uh, untypical of the guitar players of that time. You know, early early eighties, um, everybody either would have been using Marshalls or a Roland Jazz Chorus, you know, or perhaps the studio players would have been using Fender Deluxes or Princetons, maybe. Um, so Frank's setup was pretty deeply involved. In fact, it was. It was really four amplifiers, for the most part, were were engaged on almost every part of of a Frank Zappa album. Um, he usually had a stereo setup, and it was two channels that delivered a very clean tone. And sometimes the clean tone might have a flanger or some kind of effect on it, a delay. And then there'd be two channels of uh, dirty guitar that might have been, you know, through Marshalls or um, something heavier. And uh, I remember uh, I would mic the clean guitar with 421s or maybe 57s, and the dirty guitars were RE20s, and it'd probably be like an 87 or something in the middle of the room as well. Um, and, you know, sometimes I might just use um, one of those cabinets. Sometimes I might take all four of them, combine them to mono. Uh, you know, other times we do things like use a little pig nose, uh, you know, six-inch speaker guitar amp and, you know, throw it in the, the, the uh, bathroom or, or in the shower or even in the toilet and, you know, just try to get something that was weird or, you know, face it down on the floor or put it in the echo chamber. He used to love doing that kind of thing. Um so, so you know, Frank was really great like that. I mean, it was always about um, really coming up with something different. And um, a lot of times we'd even try direct guitar, direct into the, the Harrison console. And um, I remember the Harrison consoles had these great parametric uh, EQs that were very powerful and um, really had a lot of character. So guitar sounds were really manipulated at the console. And in fact, even a, a lot of times with direct guitars, I remember I would patch into one channel of the console and then I would take that channel and send it to another channel on the console to to get the the... EQ and all, um, even more radical. Um, and, uh, he loved these old Innovonics 201 compressors. So, uh, a lot of the direct guitars were done on with those particular compressors. They're very sort of smooth, um, compressors. And, uh, he also loved, uh, we had a EMT PDM compressor, which was basically a Neumann mastering compressor. Uh, and uh, a lot of times we'd use that on the guitar and it could, it could go from very subtle to very, uh, severe, just depending on how you hit it. And, um, that got used on guitar. So, you know, his whole approach and technique was, 
was very different than than most other guitar players at the time. You know, most other uh, bands. Uh, you know, I, I, when I think about it, it was kind of uh, sort of new wave era, if you will. And most people would come in with a rolling jazz chorus that you'd you know put two fifty sevens on, and um, or they might come in with just uh, you know some small Fender that was pretty much the typical guitar player's aesthetic or unless you were in a a kind of a metal band you know um but uh yeah yeah i mean i i think you know ultimately you know if if you want to get a great vocal sound you get a great singer yeah. if you want to get a great guitar sound you know it, it it's just the 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 real character comes from the player and then the instrument yeah so i know some of those guitar records are recorded live in front of an audience as well. Um, other than the kind of obvious considerations, were there any huge differences recording and mixing a live album compared to a studio album? Uh, you know, in some ways they were very similar because uh, what happened was Frank decided that he really liked his soloing live as opposed to the studio. He felt that he kind of stiffened up. He got a little conservative when he got in the studio to record. So he tended um, to love what he was doing live. He'd, you know, have board recordings that he thought the guitars were great on. And I said to him one day, you know, why don't you just mic up the guitar and record it separately you know just record get a, a two-track machine and just record your guitar and uh and he did uh and often like the uh, shut up and play your guitar album was really a lot of these recordings that were done live where we would just take his isolated guitar track and basically have the band uh overdub to it you know he had the greatest of, of musicians from you know terry bozio and vidi caliuta who had just incredible time and just great feel so they could easily kind of after the fact go back and play against frank's um guitar part and it would just sound natural so I, I guess moving back to the instruments uh maybe moving on to acoustic guitar um, sure. Do you have kind of go-to techniques, favorite mics? Um, you know, uh, acoustic guitar, again, changes day-to-day, part-to-part. Um, if it's a singer-songwriter uh, type of situation where I'm trying to make the guitar sound big and equal to the voice, I probably would do a two-mic kind of setup uh, where there's a mic that's sort of on the 12th fret and then a mic that's closer to the bridge. And I might do a, a small body condenser on the bridge, like a 451 or KM84. And then on the, the, the neck, it changes daily depending on the sound. If I want something more sparkly and bright, I could use a blue bottle or a 414 uh if i want something that's warmer more musical i'll use like a sony c37a tube mic or maybe a 67 
or 251, depending on what the studio has. Um, you know, if I'm doing um, just a strummy guitar that's part of the rhythm, I think I have to ask myself, what do I want out of that guitar? Do I want just the pick across the strings percussion, or do I need the tone, or uh, do I need the, 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 the weight and the body? Um, so the miking really is determined by what I'm trying to get out of the sound. Um, you know, I've done everything from, from, uh, Cole's 4038s to, you know, uh, 57, I used 57s and RE15s, EV RE15s. I love those mics. They're just very mid-rangey. You don't get a lot of that zippy strummy thing. Um, so they're, 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 they can be kind of nice and middly sounding in a track. Um, often if I've, I'm double tracking an acoustic guitar. You know, I'll, I'll treat the second track with a different microphone. Um, you know, if I'm double tracking, usually I like to get a, a excuse me, a little different uh, tone of some sorts by either changing the guitar, changing the the inversion, uh, capoing. Um, but often I'll, I'll I'll just change the mic setup or or just deliberately uh, change the EQ or compression. Yeah. Do you have um, kind of go-to techniques for if someone is playing the guitar at the same time as singing? Um, you know, I I've done a lot of things with that, and it really depends on the singer. If it's somebody that's kind of confident with their playing, and I really need to get isolation i've almost built baffles or blankets over their uh guitar so i've tried to figure out ways to separate the voice and guitar i mean the toughest thing is if you have somebody that's playing acoustic guitar quietly but singing loudly you know it's almost impossible to not get the guitar to bleed into the acoustic guitar mics a lot of times if the if i can I'll uh, take a direct out of the guitar and I'll even put a pickup in it. And even if that direct sound only ends up being 20% of the acoustic guitar sound, it's 20% less vocal leakage in the microphones. Um, you know, so all, all you can do is try to point the microphones downwards a little bit away from the voice and try to put the point, the vocal microphone a little bit, um, Upwards, so the back of the microphone is uh, facing the acoustic guitar to get a little less guitar in there, but um, but it's it's definitely tricky, and sometimes you just have to like um, you just have to deal. And when it gets to be a problem, in other words, perhaps somebody sings the chorus really loudly, and there's so much vocal in the acoustic guitar mics, it's making the voice sound distant, or you can't bring the acoustic guitar up to the level that you need to. You know, I'll ask them to, you know, maybe move their head a little bit to, to one side or the other, to the left, perhaps, to, uh, you know, avoid singing into the guitar microphones. So, but that's definitely a tricky one, and and it's really uh, just luck, you know. Um, um, I'm trying to think, uh, you know, there's a couple of singer songwriters that I've done albums with that I've been very 
very fortunate to, like Jason Mraz, who's got a stunning voice and is a great guitar player, and his voice is about the same level as his acoustic guitar playing. So it's easy and perfect. Uh, Jamie Lawson, who I did an album with a couple of years ago, Jamie's just great great player and you know he really wanted acoustic guitar sounds that were uh smaller and a little bit more fragile so we went out and found a bunch of you know small body parlor type guitars that had much more mid-range tone and um you know a lot of the miking might have been done with uh you know a 421 or an re15 that i mentioned earlier um but um you know i, I think it's really um it's down to the to the singer. So I guess carrying on to talk about um, separation and bleed, I do a lot of my recording in one big room. Have you had uh-huh. any particular um, kind of technique success over the years with controlling bleed or working with it, or can you think of any kind of particular projects where you've had to do a lot of that? Yeah, I mean, you know, the 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 bleed uh, thing can be absolutely great. Um, it can be really powerful. You know, if you think of all the great jazz recordings done at um, CBS 30th Street Studio in the 1950s or <clears throat> Rudy Van Gelder um, recordings done in the 50s and 60s, um, I think part of the, the tone of those records is the leakage. It's it's the piano and upright bass sitting right next to the drums. So the drum leakage that's there is all tight early reflection. It's not leakage from across the room that's, you know, five milliseconds delayed. It's super tight. So it tends to be thick sounding and it it almost reinforces the tone. You know, sometimes a lot of the kick drum bleed from a jazz drummer's kick drum that you get in the piano can just have this nice resonant bottom and it really adds to the kick drum um so so leakage can kind of really be your friend um you know i've done things like for instance i did some of the uh, solo jack white stuff i did um, we did with everybody standing in a circle and uh, a small drum kit there as well and, and we had uh, you know a couple of acoustic guitars upright bass and you know whatever leakage is there you, you just kind of balance it get everybody in balance and you know you do it if you have to really really old-fashioned style where if if somebody is too loud, you get them to turn down a little bit or, or you get them to move away from the mic and, and you really can come up with some great tones and, um, you know, hearing the room and feeling a sense of people in a space. uh, That's a wonderful thing. Uh, so I'm never really, uh, that nervous about the leakage. The only time I'm nervous about it is, you know, perhaps if I know there's a player that's, um, really not confident and I may have to overdub his part and, you know, then I want to make sure that that's not kind of getting in mics that I, I, don't want it to but um i I think the leakage uh you know a lot of the u2 records were always done with monitors on the floor and um that extra booming bottom end that comes across everywhere just gives it this rich tone so are there any have there been any particular rooms over the years that you've had to record in where you've had to kind of 
change your techniques a lot to make the room work either kind of very very live rooms or odd reflections or very dead rooms uh actually yeah i'm just thinking of something very recently where i was uh tracking and the room was reasonably uh good size but it was dead and it just didn't have a tone it sounded very boxy um I, I was uh, kind of fighting it from the start, and what I ended up doing is reducing the amount of microphones that I used on the drum kit, going for a tighter sound, relying less on the room, because if I, even though I was able to put up distant mics, the distant mics just sounded like the same room tone, but delayed. They were starting to get slappy, and they really weren't adding any additional tone or color. They were just adding a delay to the drum kit. So I, uh, in most cases, had to just scrap those mics and, uh, you know, go with something that was just a couple of feet in front of the kit. Like, a, um, I think I had a pair of Coles 4038s that got compressed uh, heavily with a SSL compressor, <clears throat> and uh, you know the so the room town the room tone on the drums was really all about tight early reflections, uh, and the compression you know brought up the 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 kind of extra resonance in the drums and uh, gave it a little bit more character. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I uh, had to, to sort of fight the room because it, it, the more I tried to use it, the less uh, a tone I got. I just got this boxy, delayed sound. So uh, I would shy away from the room mics and, you know, go from a, a stereo drum setup to a mono mic and bring the mic down lower and get just deliberately get less of the room and you know that becomes the sound of the record and that gives give the gives a record an identity maybe it's not the identity that i started out with desiring but you, you kind of adapt and you make it work and it really becomes part of the character so then you have to if you need more ambient tones or bigger tones you've got to look at overdubbing things that will deliver that kind of character you know so um i i um i think you know you, you kind of deal and the, the sometimes the limitations can become the strength of the record are there any techniques that you've had to use in odd situations that you kind of never imagined working but actually works quite well um yeah uh, let me think of a couple of things i mean i i've uh told the story before of jack white's vocals um you know when we did uh the white stripe stuff jack really wanted uh vocals that were kind of hot and aggressive and had kind of great sort of distortion on it and um no matter what I did, overdriving a 1073 or overdriving the output of an LA-2A or um, any kind of a distortion uh, device, uh, I couldn't get the distortion right for him. It was not 
it was distorted and had power and energy, but it wasn't fun for him to perform with that tone because the distortion was kind of always there. It wasn't dynamic with his performance. Um, so I, I came up with a setup of miking him with a um, an RCA 77 microphone, which is, you know, bi-directional ribbon. And I also put up a 57 microphone of Shore 57 right next to the ribbon and fed the 57 into a guitar amp and put the guitar amp um, right in back of the RCA. So he basically was singing into the RCA and the 57 simultaneously but the 57 was feeding this guitar amp and, um, you know, it being loud and dynamic, um, he was able to sort of move into the 57 when he wanted more distortion and all that amped up vocal from the guitar amp would come into the back of the RCA 77 and um, blend in with the dry vocal that was coming in from the front of the RCA 77 and um, just worked out great. So he was able to distort the mic how and when he wanted to. It was almost like he, you know, had a a, a, a distortion device or a plug in in his in his hand while he was tracking. Are there any um, kind of experiment experimental techniques like that that you've tried that just kind of basically completely failed and you're never going to try again? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Usually, you know, the interesting thing about uh, failure is it, it sometimes means that the technique is not a failure. It's the moment, it's the application that's the failure. And sometimes if you use that same technique uh, on a different project from with a different artist, it, it, it works great, you know. And I, I think that uh, part of the, the trick is, you know, kind of hearing a sound, capturing it in your head, and being sort of uh, aware of what the process and technique was to get that sound, and then cataloging it, you know? So somewhere down the line, when you're looking for something else, or you're in a bind, and, and you know, you can't um, uh, really get the, the tone that you want, um, th that's there on the shelf for you to use. Um, you know, for for instance, with uh, Keaton Henson's vocal that I mentioned earlier, you know, Keaton sings very quietly. It's just a whisper. And it's got all this beautiful, crackly, um, I mean, it really sounds like somebody singing in your ear. It's just beautiful, but that's not easy to capture. And what I ended up doing was doing two microphones, um, a U67, which had a really nice full-bodied natural tone, wasn't compressed much at all. Um, and then I put right next to it an RE15, which is a real kind of mid-range uh, honky microphone, and compressed the hell out of that. And I would blend the two of them together. So you kind of had this sense of fidelity with the 67, but you had this RE15 that captured 
every single nuance and detail of his vocal because it had about 20 or 30 dB of compression on it. And then I would just blend the both of them together on, on you know, one track. That was the, the sound when I uh, recorded. And, you know, the good thing is that he got to hear that sound and he would react. His performance would, would become uh, affected by uh, what the sound was. So... Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I think that there's, uh, you know, a lot of different techniques that sort of, uh, go every day. I mean, uh, a lot of times I'll, if I double track a vocal, I'll deliberately change the, um, uh, microphone for the double, um, uh, I'll use something perhaps that's lower fidelity for the double track, or maybe I'll use the same microphone, but I'll just heavily compress it where the, the main vocal wasn't compressed that much. You know, any anything to, to sort of uh, fill in the missing pieces, you know, to supply what the original vocal didn't supply. Maybe you want to talk about mixing a little bit. Sure. When it comes to EQ and compression, how do you decide? I mean, I'm sure it's partly just experience, but... How do you decide whether to kind of process things on the individual tracks compared to like the drum bus or the final two bus at the end? Well, it tends to be uh, a combination of, of all. I mean, the one thing that I, I do differently is that I, I, I tend to um, really track with all my finished sounds in mind. Uh, in other words, I, I really kind of go for it when I'm cutting my, my tracks. I try to get the record as close to the finished record as possible. Uh, so my EQ compression is done while I'm tracking. Uh, I might even print a parallel drum bus while I'm tracking. Um, I'm really trying to get the record to sound like a final mix on the day that I'm tracking. So I'm, I'm looking to get 80, 90% of the way there um, when the musicians are in the room. So um, I'm, I'm really, really uh, shaping things for that effect. Uh, so the mixing process then isn't about reinventing things. Um, you know, certainly there are some times where I go, ah, I don't know, I don't like that approach anymore, or it doesn't quite fit into the mix in the way I had hoped it would. Uh, I need to make it smaller or weirder or whatever. Um, but I, um, I, I really tend to go for it while I'm, I'm cutting my tracks. So the mixing process is a lot easier. It's, it's not as much sculpting as there might have been done on the tracking date. It's sometimes clearing out room for parts to, to speak, um, you know, parallel compression on the vocal or drums, of course, but um, you know, it's really not a sort of ground up uh, um, um, build. It's really like touching up the final 20% of the record, if you will. And, and, you know, obviously if I'm mixing somebody else's material, something that somebody else recorded, then, you know, I, I've got to adjust my, my technique. And, and um, you know, I would, I would try to get the sounds the way I wanted them from the original individual track first 
and let the parallel stuff become an addition. In other words, I, I probably would want most of the tone coming from the, the, the close tracks, uh, and then the parallel compression would, would supply an additional 20% or 40% of the tone, but really, really the, the sort of um, initial character and bigness would, um, would, would come from the, the tracks. If you're kind of looking to get most of that finish on when tracking, is your two bus pretty minimal then? Uh, yeah, my my two bus. I mean, I I try to keep my two bus in the analog world. Uh, I really um, kind of old school like that, and then I really like some tone and character there. So yeah, it's a couple of dB of compression. Um, a couple of clicks, you know, a click of bottom, a click of top kind of thing. Um, it's not heavy. It's not, you know, a compressor or a limiter or whatever. It, it, it's uh, it, it's probably light. Uh, I, I prefer to keep a fair degree of the dynamics there. And again, you know, it's just dictated by the music. If it's, if it's something that's more uh, electronic sounding and, you know, wants to be uh, tighter and, squished and you know uh, more constant in terms of the dynamics um, the, you know the attack time might be faster and the amount of compression might be more um, if it's something that wants to be a little bit more honest and dynamic like uh, I don't know the folk duo that I was mentioning to you before then it's going to be simpler it'll be you know um, softer ratios and you know longer attack times I guess uh, a final question just to finish up of course. If you're um, engineering something that you're also mixing and producing, how much does your kind of recording technique change if you're the person mixing it or if it's going off to someone else to mix? You know, same thing. Like I said earlier, I, I kind of go for it. I really try to get the record as close to what I hear in my head when I start day one in fact to be really honest i try to get the record as close to finished when i'm in the rehearsal room with the band um, i'm i'm there kind of crafting arrangements that are going to sound like a finished record um i'm really thinking about how one instrument relates to the other and trying to get parts that work together but sound separate um so i'm kind of doing my mixing before I even enter the recording studio. I'm making sure that parts don't compete, that tones don't clash with other tones, that, you know, uh, I've got the, you know, snare drum sitting in the right place and it, it doesn't fight the vocal and all that kind of stuff. Um, the, uh, I tend to think like the, the real um, art of making pop records if you will happens at the arrangement stage and not so much the recording or mixing uh, the more I feel like I'm prepared before I go in the studio the better uh, record I make and and that doesn't mean I'm, I'm not still going to experiment with different textures or odd characters but that the foundation I guess is my point here the, the foundation of the record is sound because I've really got a sense of clarity and power worked out before I get in the studio thank you so much for speaking with me of course, yeah, yeah. I hope uh, I hope this works for you. It's been a pleasure.